Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got two students with me again to tackle another podcast. This is the second this afternoon. We're a little bit crunched by some time constraints and maybe poor decision-making on your attendings part regarding throwing in a bonus podcast. So Camille, you're the star of the show. How about if you introduce yourself today? Hi, um, my name is Camille. I'm a third-year medical student from Rockabisa University. Um, and we'll be discussing post-cardiotomy delirium. Post... Post... Uh, post... Cabbage. Cabbage. <laughs> Post-cabbage delirium, okay. right? Uh, and we're going to be looking at the difference maybe between being on and off the pump yes. and some other factors that we learned about. Eric, you're joining us. You're back for your third... Uh, podcast as well. Oh yeah. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Hello again. My name is Eric. I'm also a third year medical student at RVU. Now usually we go into a little bit more depth. Eric told us that he was going into pathology, potentially forensic pathology. I'm still trying to talk him into neuropathology. Um, I keep asking him, didn't you tell me that you were going yeah. into neuropathology? And Camille, uh, what direction might you be headed? Do you have any ideas yet? Um, I have an interest in um, general surgery at this time, so that's hopefully. General surgery, will that potentially be cardiothoracic surgery <laughs> at some point? Um, he smiles, that says yeah. a million, yeah. like I wish people could see that smile that followed. Um, I don't were, know. If this were a video cast, everybody would be going. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was in part because of that that we developed this podcast, I think, right? Yes. I asked you about uh, time on the pump, right? And you said, I don't know. And I said, well, I I don't either. (laughs) I was taught when I was in residency. So I I went to Baylor College of Medicine for my residency. Uh, That was where a number of the procedures involved in cardiothoracic surgery, I think, have been developed and perfected, maybe. Uh, They have a history with a well-known surgeon, Dr. DeBakey, um, who came out of that uh, out of that group of hospitals, and there were a tremendous number of cardiovascular surgeries that we ended up seeing patients afterwards for delirium. And one of the things I thought I was taught, and there were a lot of things that probably haven't held up over time, uh, but one of the things that I thought I was taught was that the amount of time on the heart lung bypass machine, also known as the pump, uh, that the, the amount of time on that was a um, increased the risk for having a post-operative delirium. Now, I'm, I'm not sure that what we read held up with that, but we're going to dive into that today and take a look at what we did find out. How does that sound? Um, pretty good. Um, there's some interesting findings and some agree- agreement and some disagreement in, in that as well. So. Hopefully not as much disagreement as there is in some of the neuropathological literature that we uh, ground <laughs> through. So Eric, you have uh, taken a look at the principles that are tested on the sh- psychiatric shelf for delirium. What do you have for us? Yeah, so most of the questions involve a patient usually status post-surgery or status post-medication uh, changes. And I found the most um, obvious criteria being a waxing and waning consciousness with a lucid interval and maybe like a decrease in attention span. So a lot of the comparisons are between delirium and dementia on these questions. So it's really important for you to 
see that the patient in the question stem has fluctuating cognition as opposed to just gradual decline or mm -hmm. stable decline in, in um, their memory. Also, there's this thing called sundowning where their um, alertness and cognition seems to decline more towards the end of the day. So I guess looking at questions that, if anything related to surgery post-op, could be delirium, as well as any recent changes in medication or substance abuse. Keep in mind for delirium on those ones. There is, uh, m my recollection is that sometimes there would be some challenges added to those questions when you had somebody who may not meet the criteria for a dementia, but has had some cognitive change over time. That population seems to be at higher risk. Mm -hmm for delirium, I think we saw that as one of the risk factors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, when when you'll see that, you still have to watch for the waxing and waning. That yeah. waxing and waning is kind of a dead giveaway. Yeah. It, it's just real clear. Mm -hmm. Have you had questions like that come up on either your Anki deck or your uh, Q-Banks? Yeah, I've had a couple, yeah. And are they always waxing and waning? Yeah, the waxing and waning, or their cognition comes and goes. Yeah, yeah that's really the phrases. Or they're able to pay more attention and then they're confused. Yeah, and then, definitely. Yeah, okay, good. So let's go ahead and talk about um, delirium after cardiac surgery. So uh, where do you want to start, Camille? Tell me, tell me what you think would be a starting point for this conversation. Well, um, we've, I remember in the past podcast, you've dealt with delirium before. Um, I think since we're going to be specific on the, the CABG, Cabbage. Um, we probably want to start with the risk factors and just skip the part of the definition of delirium since we kind of hit that already. That already. Yeah. yeah. Could can I? Um, yeah. Let's let's start with risk factors. Which there are a lot. I think most of the articles we had were very specific to cardiothoracic surgery or aortic surgery, right? They seem to group those together. I think the reason why is because in all cases those surgeries can be done either with the the pump or without the pump and that becomes important a little bit later right yes um so how about if we start with um how about bucerius in 2004 this is the group out of leipzig they had a list of like 12 different risk factors i'll i'll set the background while you're looking for your notes on that because i'm doing this out of order for poor camille um, what they did is they they looked at I want to say sixteen thousand surgeries. That's right, and they said based on those sixteen thousand surgeries, um, what are the more likely risks for delirium? Now, interestingly enough, I think this is a group. My my guess is that this is a group that has worked to get off the use of the pump, right? Because I think starting about the time that I left residency, um, about the time that I left residency, uh, I, I wasn't aware of off-pump surgeries, but I didn't have experience in cardiothoracic surgery or cardiovascular surgeries. So I think this is maybe one of the groups that was making the transition as possible away from the pump. They listed, uh, they, they had 16,000 surgeries and they didn't have a clear method for identifying the delirium. Uh, when it popped up, it was by clinical assessment. It seems like it was a fairly random thing. It wasn't specifically sought for. And 
they also found that about 15% of the patients had perioperative strokes. And, and one of the things that you and I talked about before was that we think that there might sometimes be embolic showers. And, and I don't think, and, and I was wondering what role that played in the delirium. We never got to that. Yeah. So, so just, just so you're aware, that's still a question I have out there that I need to read about more. So, so Bucerius, um, they talked about uh, 10 or 11 things, but the use of the heart-lung bypass was, I think, their, one of their most significant factors in, uh, in having a delirium postoperatively. What other delirium, what other factors did they find that caused delirium, and what stood out for you from this study? Um, well, the age, obviously, it, it sounds like that's an important um, risk factor because people in the older, um, over 75, I said between 70 and 75 years old seem to have an increased um, incidence of um, postoperative delirium. Um, also, the time under, uh, oper the operation time, anything greater than three hours seem to have an effect on it. Um, the urgency of the operation as well. Um, so that the, the patient that were to go on uh, emergency surgeries, they had more um, incidences of those as well. Um, other met metabolic conditions like uh, diabetes mellitus, um, AFib, issue of uh, cardiovascular disease. Um, I mean, blood transfusion interoperatively also had an effect as well, surprisingly as well. Um, and, and that comes back to something else we'll, we'll talk about later and I don't understand very well. So the amount of fluids, it seemed like some of the articles we read talked about fluid management during surgery being a, a factor. I want to I stop at one thing before you go a lot further. Operation time of greater than three hours was a risk factor. Now, one of the challenges I have is that some of the articles we read said time intubated was a risk factor, but that seems like that's very similar to the amount of time of the surgery. And time on the pump was always what I heard. But I think maybe a simple way of thinking about this is, at least based on this data, the longer that somebody has, uh, the longer that the surgery is, probably as a, as a general rule of thumb, the more likely a delirium is. Now that's not all of the all of the story, but that seems to be a pretty reasonable way of saying that. And probably, um, what, what I don't know is if that time, the same amount of time, like three hours um, without, they call it the beating heart surgery, I think, right? Oh. That's the non-CPB or the non-bypass uh, surgery. Um, what I don't know and what I never saw is if time made a difference in the non-bypass surgery. So I don't know the answer to that. Does that sound about right? That, that seems, I agree with that, yes. All right, so from there, I, I think we have an idea that there's a lot of factors. General health probably matters. Mm -hmm. Now I want to jump to the Smolter article, which I liked quite a bit. This is the 2013 article. And I just want to like do a serious shout out. There are some really great articles, I think, in, in the articles that we uh, together. So this is a study looking at an over 70, a 70 and over population. This is 150 um, patients. And the thing that impressed me is that every patient day one, day four had an assessment for delirium. Now I'm going to be a little more impressed in a few minutes with another study, but this was to me tremendous. 
Now they find that about 55% of the people after cardiovascular surgery have a post-operative delirium. And the majority of those are hypoactive delirium. And, and I think that's very different than some of the other studies that we're gonna look at. Um, my initial thought was the reason that they're finding so many hypoactive deliriums is because they're looking and that's why this the relative number of hypoactive versus hyperactive is so high, right? And why the total number is so high. But we're going to find some other data in a minute that makes this really interesting. I, I think. I know it, it was it was also interesting along during the process of finding this out. I didn't know there's a. I've always thought delirium was always hyperactive, like patient just is like agitated and just like increased pathetic um, activity. And it was surprising to to hear about the hyperactive part, which really oftentimes goes underdiagnosed. So that was interesting too. It was undetected quite a bit. I think you listened to the previous podcast on delirium, and we talked about that hypoactive delirium. Yeah. I was, uh, we were quite often consulted for uh, depression postoperatively by uh, some of our cardiothoracic peers uh, and because the patient looked profoundly depressed and when we would start doing some basic cognitive tests like the MMSE, um, there was clear waxing or waning, I think waning in this case, right, of consciousness and that could change over time. And so we were um, quite often uncertain if we were dealing with a delirium or dementia because we didn't have the full picture of the changes and it was hypoactive. So what did they find as the problems that are the risk factors for delirium? In the hypoactive? In the Smolter article. Um, I'm just trying to... I think you were there. I was? Oh, I missed that for a second. Same kind of things, right? I think so. Um. So age again, diabetes again. Um, but then they had a couple of things that changed. Was it the one with the patients having some depressive episodes pre-diagnosed as well? That was a different that one, was a different I think. One? Yeah. So, so this is the Smolter 2013 article. They did a great job looking for it. It was in over 70. It was post-cardiac surgery. And the other things that they found were gastric ulcers gastritis and ulcers being a pretty significant risk factor. I thought that was fascinating. But they also said the volume load during the operation, and that was the sum of the infused volumes. And it wasn't clear to me, and I don't—I simply don't know enough about this process to know if this is blood loss, if this is fluid loss, if this is kind of back to another way of saying uh, um, I don't know if this is too much volume or if, because this is the sum of infused volumes, if this is simply another marker for a very long surgery, right? The longer you're in surgery, would you have more volume infused? I don't know the answer to those things, but I wondered about that. Then then they started looking, and, and this is where we start seeing a break in some of the the uh, ways that we're thinking about delirium, because I think we all, I've always thought about delirium as being a, uh, an operative event. And yet this article is starting to talk about post-operative events that are predictive of delirium, or of course, not predictive, but maybe are correlated with the delirium. They talk about uh, ventilation time in the ICU. They noted that all patients except for one were less than 24 hours. They excluded that person from the, anal uh, the analysis. They talked about highest temp in the ICU. If you have 
a highest or a high highest temp then that's predictive and then sodium concentration I didn't I couldn't find in my reading if that was high sodium or low sodium I probably just missed that um, they didn't list operating time in their list of risk factors as I read through the article except for in the like the abstract I saw it in the abstract, but not described later. And then I think the thing that's interesting about this is it, it seems like the previous students that I've worked with have tried to explain to me that delirium is probably also an ICU thing. I think that might have been Dave Brown that tried to teach me that, and I was a little bit slow on that. But he, he my, my recollection is that there are probably ICU factors that lead to that, and we're going to look at another paper that speaks to that. So. Um, one of the things that surprised me is that every hour um, in the ICU on the vent increases the risk of delirium by 20%. And that was, to me, stunning. Now, some people make the case that the building delirium causes the need to be on the vent and not vice versa, so I thought that was interesting. So. Let's, let's go ahead and from there, we're going to jump to an article that I think I was going to pick up anyway. And then mostly after that, I'm going to shut up, I think. So between in 19 or in 2020, I'm in a new century. In 2020, there was a study by Ertmans, Ert, E-E-R-T-M-A-N-S, and his group. And what they did is they said they said I, I don't even know if I can explain this. So it, Camille, kind of help me here if I'm going down the wrong pathway. But there's at least some thought that cerebral O2, O2 desaturation during cardiovascular surgery is a cause of delirium, right? But the Ertman study, they said essentially, now we, we addressed O2 saturation during surgery and we still had the same rates of delirium. So we think that it's post-operative post-operative desaturation after the cardiac surgery that causes the problem. And I thought this was fascinating. So we've gone from all of these risk factors cause delirium to these risk factors are associated with delirium. There are preoperative factors and there are emergent factors during surgery. So age, diabetes, these things are part of the patient. And then as the surgery starts, the duration of the surgery, the time on the pump, the use of the pump, um, the amount of blood that's transfused, the amount of volume given maybe, those are intraoperative events that might precipitate a delirium. So there's like the inherent risk factors of the person and then the ones that emerge during the surgery. And now we're starting to look at this post-operative time and what happens then. So they have this really interesting tool. I had to go look this up on the internet. I think Camille, you and I were talking about this after. There's something called near-infrared spectroscopy, which allows uh, during surgery for uh, some sort of monitor that is placed uh, on, the, on the head, uh, on the outside of the skull, 
and it's able to read oxygen saturation through uh, some sort of um, elliptical response and then that uh, elliptical response of the wave uh, changes based on the amount of hemoglobin bound by oxygen, if I understand it correctly. And so they're able to actually look at the mismatch between oxygen given and what's perfusing the brain. And so when they addressed the operative uh, oxygenation, then they started looking at uh, post-op oxygenation and found that people were having hypo, uh, hypo, hypoxia during post-op. Now, we didn't see a solution for that, but we saw that, right? Yeah. Now, I think this is kind of um, interesting to me. The group that found this, this was, again, Ertman's group, they have a protocol where three times a day, which I assume is every shift, whoever is coming on shift does a CAM ICU with every patient. They also do a RAS, which is a measure of, of awakeness. And so maybe they would miss, uh, um, I was thinking based on this that potentially they would miss um, hypoactive deliriums, but it doesn't look like it because they identified quite a few. They identified in the 30% post-operative delirium cases they had in their case series, 45% were hyperactive, 41% hypoactive, and 14% both, which I thought was very interesting. So in any case, they had a few risk factors as well. Longer post-op time, we've seen that before. Longer ICU stay, we've seen that before. Um, and post-operative, um, they call it SCTO2, which is this, uh, this is the near-infrared reading, uh, regional cerebral oxygenation saturation. That's mm -hmm. what the ST stands for. But uh, not intraoperative, right? So preoperative and, and Intraoperative didn't matter, sorry, but post-op did matter, and that's where they saw the delirium association. And the, delir and the duration of surgery was similar. Um, so it, it's not clear to me if they had people on and off pump, and, and I guess the question I had afterwards was if, if we can see what post-op oxygenation is and it, it doesn't affect, it, and the, the amount of time on the pump doesn't matter, that would be an interesting question to, to look at. Now. Now, I'm going to say, I'm going to ask you, Camille, you went down the rabbit hole, right? This is all basic stuff. Everybody hears this stuff about generally all types of delirium. We haven't really said anything terribly new up to this point. But there was a question raised. There was an interesting study done. Uh, let's see. This is the O'Neill study. In 2017, this is a Vanderbilt group, right? Okay. Tell me about this Vanderbilt study. Oh, um, so this is, they tried to find out some, um, some markers that's different, that shows up differently when, in the, that diffuses across the blood-brain barrier. And um, it, it, it literally shows as when the patient's on the CPB, which is the cardiopulmonary bypass, um, there's an increased rate of inflammatory responses. And that's because of uh, a marker called the S100B. Um, it disrupts the the, bar the barrier um, processes there, and also the neuron-specific enolase, which also is a marker that, uh, that comes on by the astrocytes during the neuronal injury, and that's a, an indication of cerebral damage. Which it's it's we just talked about oxygen saturation in the brain, which I feel like it's if there's decreased perfusion in the brain, the brain is going to go into a panic mode, and and all all the um, oxidative processes just goes out of out of whack and 
that holds the chemicals that come released and disrupts the whole system, which would probably worsen the delirium as well. So those are some of the markers um, that were identified. Um, there may be various other theories as well, but um, I'm going to hold on for just a second. So the Vandy study was interesting, and it, and if I've said this incorrectly during the study, CPB is the pump. Pump, yes. And in Vandy, only about 17% of the people were on the pump. I thought it was also interesting that um, they did a CAM ICU two times per shift and had been doing that since 2007. Their outcomes were days positive on the uh, CAM ICU for um, the cutoff for delirium. And what they found was somewhat like the um, Viserius group. Is that how you say his name? Viserius. Yeah. They found, hey, if you don't use the pump, it's probably a better outcome. And I think that would mean that the I, I don't know about the time mattering or not. I just I just can't find time mattering, but pump seems to be an issue. So the Vandy group says, hey, we think there might be an inflammation factor here. But they didn't they didn't actually have any biological markers they listed, right? They just said, hey, we think maybe SB uh, one or S110 beta might cause these changes in the blood brain barrier. So you went down the rabbit hole. There were, there were a couple of other articles. I think uh, Vas Unilashorn, V-A-S-U-N-I-L-A-S-H-O-R-N. This is a group. I think she's out of Harvard. I don't know if the whole group was. She published an article in 2015. Yeah. Tell me about, um, and, and then a follow-up in 2019. Tell me about those. Uh, this was a measurement of the cytokines, so the IL-2, IL-6, uh, 10-0. Um, better alpha, sorry, TNF alpha, and they measured this this markers at various times during the uh, preoperatively one day post of three days post a month after, and they they discovered that the IL six is uh, is elevated in um, at the onset of the delirium. IL two, on the other hand, is just is just a inflammatory marker, which is what they do anyways. It's increased the entire time, you know. So, but the IL six factor was more um, was quite elevated um, during the whole process of the patient having delirium and uh, the first and the third day, which I, f- I think I was interested. Also, goes back to the primary um, oxygen deprivation in the brain as well, and, and potentially in the ICU, at least in the group that was addressing oxygen mismatch during the surgery. Yeah. I, I want to. S- Sometimes with your accent, I can't quite understand what you're saying, so I'm going to repeat that. TNF-alpha. TNF-alpha, yes. TNF-alpha was one of the markers, IL-2, IL-6. IL-6 at day four, is that what you said? Day three. Day Day three. three, Yeah. Two and three. Were were either of these studies specific for cardiothoracic surgery? Um... I know the second one was not. I it think was, this was an aging population delirium risk. Aging and major major surgeries, major surgery, and okay. cardiac surgery will be considered a major surgery, I would think. Now there was an interesting study that was done afterwards. So there's the the article we looked at a uh, an abstract together. Yes. This was the Li Jing article from 2023. Um, they looked at TNF alpha. They looked at the interleukins, and something that I'm not familiar with, soluble 
TNF receptor 1 and soluble TNF receptor 2. I think I understood the findings. If you want to take it, up to you. If you want to throw it to me, I'm happy to pick it up. Well, um, I was, that's the first time ever you're in that. Those, yeah, me those too. Sectors. <laughs> and I, I think that they, 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 I'll put them in the cohort of the TNF alpha um, family. And yes. I think they do the same function. It Maybe it's a preamble or a breakdown of that. That's the most I can tell you about that. You can tell me more about it than I can then. Um, I think the thing that was interesting to me though is now, so we have this new potential mechanism of action, right? We're changing the blood brain barrier. Um, and there are a number of risk factors for post-operative delirium. We've talked about them. Mm -hmm. Infection, um, transfusion, the amount of volume, time on the pump, pump versus non-pump surgery, right? We, we've repeated these things over and over. What they say, though, is that when you take into account those factors, other than TNF, soluble TNF receptor 1, they don't remain significant. The, the the inflammatory markers don't. And I think I think for me one of the very difficult questions is are are these markers a sign of somebody that has a delirium or do they drive the delirium or both? And and I'm waiting for our neuropathologists to answer that question even if they are currently considering being forensic pathologists. Yeah, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg question, you know, is uh markers causing the delirium or is the delirium causing the markers so yeah. or is there or a feedback or some of the markers causing it exactly uh, it could also be the same way that there's an injury happening and then the, the markers come on and oh see this this is what's going on now then it, it leads yeah. us to probably more helping us their diagnosis and management yeah. eventually so Camille I kind of ran through most of the things that I was able to read there we had like what 10 or 15 articles and I th I think one of the things I was surprised by was how many different articles had different risk factors for the same surgery tell me what you saw um, delirium I mean we all know how delirium works it's just you have to worry about the age and everything else another another thing I did say was Sometimes are we are we are we worried about the preoperative the perioperative um, management process? Like, since we only diagnose delirium postoperatively, could it have been also that medication administered for pain um, or sedation could have influenced the delirium pro the patient experience in delirium as well? And there was also some other studies that I saw. I cannot name them like you do. Well, I have the names <laughs> written down. That's how uh, I can. Okay. Um, one of them was trying to um, verify if getting a patient on a spinal surgery or general surgery, um, general anesthesia, I mean, sorry, spinal anesthesia, compared if there's going to be some differences or in the um, delirium, having patient post-operative delirium. That did not show any significant difference as well. Okay, so hold on. I want to hear that again. There was a study looking at the difference between spinal anesthesia and general no, anesthesia. No difference in the delirium. No, no. I mean, it, it, didn't, it didn't have any influence at all. Because a couple of the articles that I read, one of the things I noticed is that there were preoperative medications for pain that were given. Mm -hmm. uh, I think oxycodone in one, different medication in another one, but quite often opiates, and opiates I think would 
potentially be a risk factor yeah, for a delirium. Yeah, the, the, the opi opiates were uh, literally the culprits, most of them. And we had multiple other, there was also another study that tried to compare um, ramifotenil and dex, I cannot say that word, but the Dexmetotidine? Yes. Yes. Tried. So so that was for treatment of delirium, right? The, for treatment for it as well. And patient with the, the opiate um, medication actually had worse than delirium because it's, it's, an, it's an opiate derivative as well, so. Um, the dexmetotidine is no, an no, opiate? No, no, the, the other one, the Remy other fentanyl. Remy fentanyl, Remy okay. Fentanyl. Yeah, I could say that one, not the other one. Yeah, Remy, and I think Remy is like sufentanil or maybe a different a variant of sufentanil, is that yeah, right? Which is so. a, they're both more potent than fentanyl, right? I'm not sure, <laughs> I don't know. One of these days I'll have to do a podcast, I was, were, were either of you guys involved in studies as medical student to help pay the bills? Yes, no, no. So the, I was at the University of Utah. And, uh, the anesthesia department was recruiting for some studies. One of these days we'll have to talk about those in one of the podcasts. <laughs> you seem to be first in pharmacology, so that's interesting. Uh, no, I, I, my psychopharmacology more than anything, yeah. What else did you learn from reading through the articles that stood out to you? Aside from the risk factors, and I mean, oh, also, the, there's a, a couple of discrepancies in the the, uh, man, the assessments, the CAM IC oh, yeah. assessments. Um, I saw some study did the ICDSC um, study, and I'm gonna find the full minute of that. Uh, I can find it. Well, ICDSC. There was also some study that also used the MMSE in the in, the, in, in assessing um, delirium, which has. Because of a discrepancy, made it a, the ice, the CAM ICU was the gold standard. Was I gold think. standard one, and I was curious yeah. to know what the thought process was behind using it different. Which obviously I think it would help, but using a different um, screening tool to get that. Yeah, I I think some of the studies we looked at, from my perspective, were done retrospectively. Um, there was only a clinical assessment to determine if there was a delirium, and so there wasn't a formal method. I think the studies that have the ICUs that are absolutely focused on delirium um, are more formalized, and they use that CAM ICU. I think the CAM, I want to say the CAM came out of some work done by uh, Dr. Inouye, I-N-O-U-E-Y, Dr. I-N-O-U-Y, something like that. Yes, and, you're right. And Dr. Dr. Sharon Inouye. Yes, yes, Dr. Inouye. She, I don't, I haven't seen very much published by her recently, but she really was, um, I, I would say, a tremendous force in improving the ability to, uh, of physicians to recognize delirium and figure out what can we do about it, right? Because I, I, I think the CAM came from her. I don't know if the ICU CAM, which is modified, was something she did as well. It's, it seems like it, she was involved in that. And then I think there is maybe another version of the CAM somewhere else. Um, but she also did some work looking at maybe causes of delirium. I think acetylcholine uh, and dopamine mismatches were some theories that were looked at at one point. I don't know if she was in, I, I don't recall if she was involved in that or not. Uh, attempts to treat delirium with procholinergic uh, molecules like uh, oh the the uh, Alzheimer's treatments right that didn't seem to pan out, and even the antipsychotic medications to sort of tamp down the pro um, dopaminergic response um, seems to have kind of a mixed outcome as well. 
based on my recollection of, of our last podcast. So really, uh, I, I think just a tremendous force in this topic. Uh, great deal of respect for her work. Mm. Uh, in addition to other risk factors, um, patients with a stroke, a cerebrovascular accident, also have increased risk of delirium. Um, they also thought of patients who have, uh, were having um, a coronary artery um, disease. Um, and with, with the plaques and, and, uh, and the vessels could also have an effect on, the, on, the, on them, an impact on them having a delirium. And also um, something called cerebral embolization. Um, I wonder if that's the cardio. I wonder if that's the shower, the, the embolic the shower. shower. Okay. I don't know if that is or not. Though. Yeah, that it's and that's basically it's more of the interoperative factors that that's going on. Like what you do interoperatively, that could also dislodge and affect that as well. Yeah. So so that is the embolic shower. I think that's what we called an embolic shower many years ago. Without, I don't know that we ever had anybody sit down and talk to us very much about it. I think it was buzzwords we heard. If you could for a minute just explain what that. I, Embolic shower. Um, so, so I think the idea is that during the surgery, something dislodges, just like you were saying, okay. and it breaks up and, and showers. And as it gets in the small vessels uh, in the brain, that it ends up blocking those small vessels. They're maybe already atrophied or um, partially blocked by atherosclerotic processes over time. Right? And then you add the this chunk of something that isn't normally floating around and doesn't bump along the walls of the vessel like maybe platelets do, right? Okay, and so then it clogs the vessels and causes some strokes. Oh, so and and potentially it could be larger, I guess, pieces, but I always imagined kind of a, uh, and, and I don't know how accurate this is, I always imagined something that was kind of a small and, and had a shower effect in a number of small vessel areas. Interesting. Uh, what else stood out to you? Um, there's there's this paper by Sokan Linham. I have the name in, in front of me. Good call. Um, they did talk about the there's a possible effect of the cardiopulmonary uh, bypass affecting uh, neurotransmitters. Um, they talk about it could have an effect on the serotonergic, uh, dopaminergic, and anticholinergic system as well. And um, there's a whole exit. They sound very excitatory, and delirium is an excitatory um, excitement state. You know. And they, they suspect that that could also have an impact because the disruption in the, in the whole flow process of the... So did they say that uh, beating heart surgery eliminated that? Or did they... Because I think some of the articles we looked at made the case... There's a lot of hypotheses that was being made. And, okay. and the, the, the one problem during this, uh, there's this um, preparation of this podcast, we're trying to find, go to the biochemical... Um, process of why okay, this is happening, yes. What exactly is the, 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 the biochemical processes that could be going on and that it is happening? And that it's limited, I would say there were limited results um, found in that regard. So a lot of the papers were just hypothesis, uh, making some hypotheses on what could be and what could not be um, in, in terms of that. This paper also mentions the microembolization, which I think is the, the uh, embolic shower. Yeah. Um, transcranial Doppler ultrasonography to compare the number and nature of intraoperative microemboli in patients undergoing off-pump cabbage, on-pump cabbage, and opium cardiac procedures. And it looks like there's a lot more microemboli on pump. Yeah. Dramatically so. It's interesting. It looks like the pump is... Uh, I was surprised. So I, one of the things I did is I, I, I tried to see what I could find about the pump, right? I was under the assumption, again... I don't know 
anything about cardiovascular surgery, and I've tried to make that clear during this podcast. What what I tried to understand was, is is this a procedure that you have to use, you don't have to use, is optional? And I, I couldn't really find a clear answer, right? I found that like the Mayo Clinic gives the option of off-pump surgery. It looks like the group, it was at the Vanderbilt group, does the vast majority of their surgeries are uh, not using the pump, so so beating heart surgery. That's, that's like 83%, but I found another statistic, and I can't remember how old this was, I think it was within the last five years, that about uh, 65, 70% of all cardiovascular surgeries are done with the pump. So, so what I don't know is, is this uh, an issue of adoption? Are there risk factors that determine whether you use the pump or not? Uh, the Vanderbilt article, the way I read that, suggests that the use of the pump um, might have happened more with high-risk patients, which had the risk factors. And, and in a way, Camille, you've, you know, you've, we, we've repeated these risk factors over and over, right? But I essentially think of the risk factors as if you've impeded health in any way, you're probably increasing the risk of delirium. And the more of those changes in your health, whether it's a previous stroke, whether it is some sort of autoimmune disease that might affect your mind, whether it is um, the inability of your heart to perfuse your brain and you have some sort of effect of that, whether that is small vessel ischemic disease, whatever the cause may be, if you add up enough of those factors, you're increasing the risk of having a delirium, right? So I, I just think of this as kind of a homeostatic system and as you add perturbations to that system, a surgery will tip you over more easily, right? So that part of it to me, all of this fits, right? I'm thinking, okay, this is a sick person going in, the surgery is necessary, there's a higher risk of uh, a post-operative delirium, right? Maybe there are some things that we can address in terms of uh, operative and post-operative oxygenation that might improve outcomes. I'll be interested to, to see how how that uh, research goes, right? Maybe there are some anti-inflammatory steps we can take to intervene. But again, generally speaking, I I suspect that our most ill patients that have had the most perturbations in their health probably need to be on the pump during the surgery and probably require a longer surgery and as a result are also more likely to be delirious. Will there be more factors than that? Absolutely, there'll be people that maybe are more vulnerable to blood-brain barrier perturbations. There might be people that are more likely to generate, uh, what is it, soluble TNF-alpha-1 and maybe 2, right? All of those things, I think, are going to be part of the story eventually. But I don't know that we even have started looking at what is it that the neuropathologist will find in the brains of people who have had an acute delirium and unfortunately died during the process, what can we find in the brain that teaches us something about why that may have happened, right? It feels like we're a long ways from being able to tie that down. And like, even if, let's say, you did get a good buzzword kind of neuropathological marker and you had a good screening, would delirium be enough of a risk factor for someone to not have a surgery? Right. Let's say you, because you know, when I was in my surgery rotation, you know, there are certain markers where if you had like lower potassium or your temperature was too high, we, they wouldn't go through with the surgery. I wonder if like you know, if we did iron out these risk factors. If like, oh, your risk for delirium is too high, we're not going to proceed with the surgery. Like, could you imagine something like that happening? Right. Well, and from what I'm, from what I've read from this article, it's more like if you have a, if you have an episode of one happening before, mm -hmm. there's an increased chance. Knowing that. I think it helps 
with your management post-operatively. Management, okay. it, w- it would necessarily would not want to stop. It just helps plan mm-hmm. ahead. Okay, this person, have, it's happened before. Let's put things in place mm-hmm. to make sure we reduce okay. that happening. I mean, mm-hmm. I would. I hope it would not be a reason for you to not get life-saving surgeries. Right. You know. So this is one of the other things that's interesting. Why do we care about delirium, right? So there's a financial cost. People that have post-operative delirium end up staying in the hospital much longer. That's a very expensive uh, event. ICU time is expensive. Um, but I also think there's an article that was done by the American Heart Association that we looked at. Camille, I think you read this better than I did. But they talked about risk factors for delirium, and they also talked about risk factors, um, I want to make sure I say this right, for post-operative cognitive impairment, right? And so the difference might, there might be a difference between a post-op delirium and a post-operative cognitive impairment with a a decaying course over time. And I think this is one of the topics that we talked about a little bit in the last podcast, and I'm still not sure I have been able to wrap my head around it very well, right? Does Does a delirium portend uh, something bad ahead? Does it simply signal more strongly something that was in process? Those are questions I think are difficult for me to know. Um, there was one study out of John Hopkins, not, I would get back to the American Heart Association one, uh, where they went, they followed 5,000 patients over a 10 year period, and they were able to, and who had gone through the cabbage. I don't know why I don't feel comfortable with the word cabbage. I don't either. <laughs> C-A-B-G. C-A-B-G. And they were trying to see if uh, if they experienced delirium, if it would cause mortality. You know, and they did find that if you'd experienced um, delirium postoperatively, you have about a 10-year, 10, an average of 10-year mortality. Increased rate of mortality. Yeah. mortality. And lesser if you had not. I mean, like, so there is some increased risk of yes. mortality, and yes. it's a 10-year risk. Yes. I'm I, I trying to remember, they did a hazard ratio, and hazard ratios are just confusing to me. I don't think they're like odds ratios or relative risk ratios. And uh, the, the, for some reason, that I, I'm a little better at NNTs, right? How many patients do I have to treat with this medication to actually get benefit from the medication? I, I'm worried that my uh, younger brother, who is a surgeon, is going to hear this podcast and say, oh my gosh, you guys are two medical students that, uh, you you were in the ICU uh, during some training? I did just a little bit, but I was not paying attention to delirium at the cardiovascular process after. So um, I spent a little bit of time going in on consult liaison service to the ICU. Um, I worked with a phenomenal physician who was an ICU doc, but he was doing general medicine wards during the week that I, or during the month that I worked with him. And uh, I, I just don't feel like I know enough about cardiothoracic surgery or post-operative treatment of cardiothoracic surgery to, to know whether we've kind of hit the mark on this or not. I think probably the data on risk factors is pretty easy to repeat, right? Um, what we understand about the pump, on the pump and off the pump, maybe we have an understanding that is more accurate than inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, uh, we'll leave the comment section open so that people who have a lot better understanding of this where we've messed up can correct us. And again, I have, I think I have mixed up CPB, which is the pump versus beating heart surgery, mm-hmm. maybe once or twice. So if I did that, uh, I apologize. Just know that 
pump is CPB and beating heart is off pump. Other other comments? I do have a question for you, Dr. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm in trouble now. No, no. I mean, this is a point where I think we we want to look at the intersectionality between surgery and psychiatry. You know, and I know we prior to this we we, we don't want to go that far. But I'm I'm just curious in what way as a psychiatrist do you think, oh, delirium. I mean, as a surgeon, you want to look at What's the primary things you can change for delirium, the metabolic causes, electrolyte imbalances, um, anything else that could contribute? That's what you want to clear out first with delirium. And if it doesn't abate, is there anything from a psychiatrist's um, perspective that you think would uh, would help in the management process? So we're talking post-operative management of delirium, right? Because that's where we normally got consulted. Um, first of all, uh, infection. Right, urinary tract infections commonly seem to be uh, factors in a delirium. I, I think it's also fair to say that there have been some changes in the way that CMS judges infections, uh, like urinary tract infection, uh, catheter-related infections, right? Okay. And so I think those have reduced, have been reduced quite a bit, and I think physicians were tracking that as a factor. So some of the big factors that we saw as potential um, additive factors in that general, right, we're, we're just adding one more insult to the body, a lot of those have been addressed. So that was one of the things we looked for quite quickly. Um, and then I think when the, the other kind of part of this in terms of the management, we talked about this in our other podcast, I want to say that that was with uh, uh, now Dr. Earnshaw that we did that podcast on delirium. Uh, having light, having orientation in the room. Some of those factors I know are used pretty commonly. Uh, the, the question about antipsychotic use is still a little bit mysterious to me. I, I'm wishing that I had a really great outcome story for that, and I don't. I, I think it's been difficult to have um, control groups that are similar to the uh, intervention group and a consistent intervention, whether that's risperidone, quetiapine, uh, olanzapine and so forth. I, I, my, my sense is that probably at the end of the day risperidone or olanzapine ended up winning the day and part of that is because you can see some urinary retention with olanzapine, so quetiapine and risperidone won the day. I think there was some data with some of the other medications since that time that's been a little bit variable. So medication interventions I, I think are still used but it's not clear to me how well they actually uh, change outcomes. In other words, does it shorten the stay? Does it increase cognition uh, or, or change that waxing nature of the fluctuation? Uh, does it do it more than simply waiting would do? Um, the, the data for orientation, uh, light, day-night cycles, those kinds of things in the ICU, that seems to have decent data for improving outcomes, uh, maybe better than what medications do. So so for me, it's looking for, like you said, the, the infections that might be lurking, the factors that could be causing or driving further uh, medical concerns, and then it's trying to get the day-night timing, the orientation going and helping that way, and then uh, potentially medications, but again, I'm, I'm a little bit iffy on that. Okay. I, think, um, I, I think generally, m my sense is that there's a lot more, uh, depending on the place you go, I suspect, but my sense was that we, we worked with this really great group of cardiothoracic surgeons. I, I, I feel like I've been fortunate enough to work with brilliant people the whole way along. And I think generally speaking, we had an occasional consult um, that was a, 
suspected to be a depression rather than a delirium, right? And But other than that, I think generally surgeons manage all sorts of tough stuff, right? I, I've been like thoroughly impressed with all the surgeons I've ever been fortunate enough to work with, with uh, how capable they are at managing so many aspects of medicine. And I don't think delirium is any different. And if you notice the articles that we were looking at, I don't believe psychiatrists were involved in any of them. I yeah. could have been wrong. Yeah. I think they were generally surgeons and people looking at risk factors and maybe ICU physicians. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so, so that's my two cents worth is that first of all, Many of these cases are being taken over by by surgeons who are managing their patients. They they manage right a lot of their patient care anyway. They manage fluids. They, they have a surgical ICU where they manage the patients. Uh, they have a post-op recovery area now. That's I think uh, I think anesthesia owns that, but close in close collaboration with uh, surgeons. So so I think. Um, First of all, kudos to the surgeons who recognize it, see it, manage it, and then maybe decide that they want uh, psychiatry involved in that as well. Um, but like I said, I, I I think even like looking at the Vanderbilt stuff, right? They're looking twice a shift for emergence of delirium. They're clearly on top of this in that ICU already, and I think that's the the way the the way people are going. So so when they're brought in. Many of the things that I used to recommend, like with the orientation, the day and night cycles, those kinds of things, but I think those are already being done, okay. right? So, so maybe we're doing less and less. I don't know. It's been an area that I haven't been involved in, in for about 20 years. That's good. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Did thank I? Th thank you. Did I repeat myself enough times? No. I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Any other thoughts that you have about this topic? No. I mean, it's the takeaway would be for me. It's it's. I mean, if I I will be doing. I'm sure I'll do cardiac surgery rotation, not surgical residency. <laughs> cardiac surgery. We rotation. don't know about that yet, right? TBD to be determined. This would be something to look. Um, I mean, be able to answer your on and half pump question eventually, you know, and be, just keep an eye out on to to see if it's going to be something. They will look different in in terms of delirium postoperatively, and also it's a good knowledge base for me as well, knowing what delirium, whether cardiac surgery or in, in, in general surgery, surgery yeah. in, um, helps. Um, then I'll be able to look out for that more. And since it's very subtle, hypoactive delirium got surprising to me. And so that's that was good. That was good to know. Yeah, that hypoactive delirium. Um, I I wonder how many times I missed it. Right, it's hard to know. Yeah. Eric, what's your take home? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Camille. You know, like when I was in my OB-GYN rotation, which was primarily surgery, I remember doing reviews for all my patients and delirium never came across my mind when you're know, checking their potassium levels or their med stuff. So I have my surgery rotation next year. So it'd be interesting to ask these surgeons how, how much of a priority that is during their initial reviews, you know, because my gynecologist, because my guy didn't ever mention delirium as a possible complication or anything. So how old, how old were your patients? They're probably in like their 50s and 60s, so it wasn't in like the, the dangerous 60s age. 60s and so 70s, yeah, so a little bit the, better. There's lower and then data for that. Were these elective surgeries or yeah, were they, they yeah, so they're, yeah, like so they're hysterectomies and stuff like that. So. THBSOs, yeah. stuff along those lines. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I, I think the risk for that would be substantially little, less. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw that more like if, it, did you see Meg's syndrome or my, Meg's, M-E-I-G-S? Like, M -E -I -G -S. <laughs> 
Did you see that at all? Because I think that would be something where you had the peritoneal involvement where you might find those kinds of symptoms, um, potentially uh, some of the surgical stuff, but that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think like uh, if you're on a surgical rotation and it's essentially a general surgery rotation, you probably won't see that with uh, cholecystectomies very often. You probably won't see it with uh, hernia repairs. Right. Uh, but you might see it with some of the patients that come in acutely with trauma, right? Yeah. I think one of the articles that we followed up with, with that uh, TNF, let's see, the soluble TNF uh, R1 and, one and 2, it looks like those might be expressed in traumatic events. And so you might find that trauma patients have a delirium and perhaps that TNF or that soluble TNF receptor molecule has some association with that. But I'll be interested to see. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that if you do end up not going, yeah, you're going to be a great neuropathologist, uh, uh, a great, uh, a great uh, forensic pathologist. Um, but I, I think if you do get lost on the way and go to the graveyard of neuropathology, which is schizophrenia, I wouldn't mind seeing what happens with delirium too. Okay. Because I think there's, I mean, I, there, there was at least at one time was some thought that there might be some overlap between those two. Because mm -hmm. there's certainly hallucinations during those deliriums. Okay. Okay. Keep that in mind. Yeah, you have my number. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, well done. You have a test tomorrow. You did uh, absolutely fantastic on this rotation. Thank you for being a part of uh, the Northeast team here at the Utah State Hospital. Eric, you're on your way out. Camille, you get to fill out your evaluation. I mean, we get to do your evaluation next. Did you tell him about yeah. the evaluations? Okay, good. Um, so on that note, team out. <laughs>